reason and rational thinking will it'll help you climb the mountain mm-hmm. you know that it'll take you from one step to the next step to the next step to the next step but it's only faith that will um, give you the courage and give you the power uh, to jump off the mountain and fly that's Mishka Shibali and this is the ritual podcast Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, fans of the podcast. I'm Rich Roll. I am your host. Can you hear that siren out there? That can mean only one thing. I'm in New York City, and I'm going to tell you all about that in a minute. But first, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in today. I appreciate your support. Thank you so much to everybody who has shared the show across all your social media platforms, at the water cooler, and actually one-on-one, interpersonally. That's the best way, right? Also, thank you so much to everybody who has made a habit of using the Amazon banner at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. doesn't cost you a cent extra. So click through the banner ad on any of the episode pages at richroll.com. takes you to Amazon. Buy what you're going to buy. Amazon kicks us some loose commission change from its copious coffers. And that allows me to continue doing what I do, which is to bring you each week an amazing conversation with a thought leader, the best and the brightest across all categories of health, wellness, diet, nutrition, art, creativity, the writing process, in the case of today's guest, entrepreneurship, spirituality, mindfulness, meditation, all the good stuff. And the idea, of course, is to help all of us unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves. And this week, I'm really excited to be back with a writer, a writer in the truest, realest sense, a musician, ultra runner, and my good friend, friend in the little brother sense, Mishka Shibali, for another amazing conversation, an unprecedented seventh appearance on the podcast, which I can't believe. Uh, And although I know I always say this, this one just might be our best conversation yet. Uh, I've got a good reason to have him back on the show, and I'm going to get into that in a second, but first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. 
I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, you guys, I'm in New York City, super excited to be here. It's spring weather. It's actually like 60 degrees out today. Insane, right? I get so much energy from the vitality of this place. It's like a battery. It just recharges me on every level. I just love being out in the street, interacting with people and just soaking up the ambiance and the vitality and the energy that this place has to offer. It's amazing. I went on a two and a half hour run this morning. I feel great. I hear all the sirens and the traffic outside. You can probably hear that. If you hear a buzz, that is the refrigerator in my hotel room that I tried to turn off and cannot figure out how to do it. So I apologize for that. In addition, my little digital audio recorder crapped out this morning. And right as I was about to record this introduction, I had to go down to Guitar Center and find a replacement. They didn't have the same one. I had to get a different one. I don't really know how to use it. So I'm unsure about the quality level of this introduction. So if it's a little off kilter, my apologies. I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, I was up at Vassar the other day. I gave a great talk to the students there, and I got to spend time with the writing department talking about writing. It was such a privilege. It's a beautiful campus. I really enjoyed it, and it gave me a great excuse to come down into the city afterwards. 
Uh, see some friends like Mishka, today's guest, like Robin Arzon, who I'm going to meet for dinner tomorrow, like John Joseph, who I met for dinner the other day, and do a couple podcast interviews. Uh, I'm going to be sitting down with Gary Vaynerchuk tomorrow. I'm really excited about that. That will be coming soon. And also my friend Jason Walkup, the founder and CEO of Mind Body Green. He's got a new book coming out called Wealth. We're going to talk about that. And all of those episodes will be coming at you in the upcoming months. As for today, if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, then you know this guy well. He is my gravelly voiced, always charming, generally disheveled, periodically homeless, predictably self-deprecating, self-avowed, nomadic, povertarian, as well as my sometime co-host and occasional aspiring vegan, now back for a record seventh appearance on the RRP. If you're brand new to the show, Mishka is an incredibly talented writer. He pens true stories about drink, drugs, disasters, desire, deception, and their aftermath. He began drinking at 13 and college at 15. And at 22, he received the Dean's Fellowship from the Master's Writing Program at Columbia University. Upon receiving his expensive MFA, he promptly moved into a Toyota minivan to tour the country nonstop as a singer-songwriter, often sharing the stage with comedian Doug Stanhope, and musical acts like The Strokes and The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. At 32, Mishka got sober and shortly thereafter began publishing a string of number one best-selling Kindle singles. The long run, his mini-memoir detailing his transformation from alcoholic drug abuser to sober ultra-runner is to this day one of the best-selling Kindle singles in Amazon history. And I'm super excited to announce that his first book book, it's called I Swear I'll Make It Up To You, Life on the Low Road, hits bookstores everywhere on March 8th. This is, and I say this with absolutely zero hyperbole, this is the master story of Mishka Shibali's Nine Lives and a shining example of an artist working at his nadir. It's a fiercely honest memoir. It's emotional. It's incredibly engaging. And it's the story of a precocious young underachiever trying to be good and failing and failing until one day he succeeds. It's about alcoholism. It's about loneliness, sobriety, running, relationships, music, art, creativity. It's about one man's attempt to reckon with the wreckage of his past and his journey to reconcile his relationship with his family. And most importantly, the father that abandoned him. Mishka's muscular prose, big heart, and dark wit inflect this grand story of mistakes, their consequences, and eventual redemption. And to quote the blurb I gave him that adorns the back cover of the book, quote, It's a mercilessly honest trip to the very center of alcoholic despondency, followed by a perfectly messy, self-deprecating squirm toward the light, an elegant and eminently human account of what it means to struggle, despair, dream, and ultimately find meaning in an uncomfortable world. This is the memoir I wish I could write, wish I had written, and for that I will always resent this author I call friend. I love Mishka like a brother. I absolutely love this book. I mean that. It is his masterpiece. And I love this conversation. I known that we were going to video this, I probably would have cleaned up a little more. I seriously doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen you clean up before, so why would you clean up for, for that purpose? Well, yeah, I have the, um, I always dress perfectly for a podcast. Right. I, yes. <laughs> like a total dirtbag. <laughs> like a perfect 
perfect attire for radio. <laughs> yes, uh, I have a face for radio. But now we're gonna we're gonna play around with broadcasting. Uh, for the listener, I've got a camera aimed right at Mishka's head right now. I don't know what we're gonna do with this. It's an experiment, but we're gonna see if we can pull. A few gems, perhaps, out of this. So no pressure, Mishka, but uh, yeah. something we can put up on yeah. YouTube. No, no pressure at In all. In line with uh, the pressure that I put on myself to do more with video. So good to see you, man. Uh, fresh off the plane from Mexico. I don't know about fresh, but uh, yeah, definitely off the plane off from the Mexico. Off the plane recently from Mexico. <laughs> yes. On the precipice of the launch of your new book, you uh, you. you you did the prudent thing, which is right before your book is coming out, you went on vacation to Mexico <laughs> instead of doing what every other author does, which is grind relentlessly, trying to shamelessly get people to talk about their book on the internet. Well, I, I knew that I needed, uh, I knew that I needed like a, just a breath before I went into, uh, you know, when, before I sort of dove into the machine mm-hmm. and, uh, man, there's, it was exhausting writing this book, but what's more than more exhausting than mining the darkness of your past and it is writing emails to people you don't know being like, please like my book. Uh, that's that's the worst. You got to get into a pretty shameless uh, state of being, you know. I'm I'm st- I'm starting the, to get there. The, the thing is, um, I was listening to this podcast the other day. Uh, uh, James Altucher was interviewing this dude, uh, Ramit Sethi, who's like a internet, you know, kind of like guru in terms of like marketing and all that kind of stuff. And he, they were talking about email lists. And this is a guy, Ramit, who's big on like building your email list, right? And James was like, yeah, but I felt self-conscious. I never had an email list. Like to the idea that you would invade somebody's inbox with like your rambling seems kind of narcissistic that anyone would want to read that. And Ramit was like, yeah, but James, you've got like millions of people that read your blog. Like there are people that want to read this. They're excited about it. Like why should you feel weird about it? But at the same time, there is kind of a level of narcissism uh, that you would think that whatever is going on in your mind or the, the product, you know, your creative work product uh, you know, should be, should, you know, should, should draw the attention of someone else. You know, there's a bizarre thing there, but at the same time, it's like, look, man, you wrote a book. That's a huge thing. You should be very proud of that. And you shouldn't feel sheepish about trying to reach out to people and spread the word because the truth is it's important, man. You know, it's important to help get, get the word out about your book. So that's what we're doing here. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I've gotten better about uh, about promoting my writing, my music, myself. You know, I, I think by the end of this, uh, you know, two month sort of promotional window, I'll just be like, "Hey, sailor, want a date?" You know, like <laughs> totally at ease with it. But I still feel like I just don't want to annoy folks. You know? Yeah, I know it, it. It is weird. It is weird to have to do that. Uh, you don't have to tell people to like your book, but just to alert them to what's going on and say, "Hey, you know, if this fits within whatever you're doing, I'd love the opportunity to be able to talk to you about it." And the truth is. If you're reaching out to bloggers or, you know, journalists or whatever, like they need content, like you're doing their job for them because right. they actually need something to talk about. And you're saying, here's something to talk about. So yeah. you're making their job easier. Yeah. It feels good to be a hero. Right. <laughs> Such a hero. What well, the, the, the awkward thing about promoting this and promoting, you know, most of my writing in, in general is, uh, you know, it's like, um, uh, here's a story in which I've done a bunch of terrible things, which I feel really embarrassed about. You should really read it. And like me. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, like I, I'm always proud of my writing. I just uh, I'm rarely proud of what I do. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I'm rarely proud of the content. You know, of of what I'm writing about. Um, well, I don't even know this this pro- I mean, this project is a little different. Though. Yeah, this I was is, gonna say like this. You know, for for the listeners, like, what is this? Your fourth, fifth time on the podcast? So yeah, most most people yeah. are already familiar with you. They've probably listened to another one of our conversations. But if you are new, uh, you know, let me just sort of set the stage a little bit. You know, Mishka and I became friends probably three years ago at this point. Yep. Um, our first conversation took place uh, as a result of of your success as a writer doing Kindle singles. You kind of dominated that market. You've had, you know, how many five best selling Kindle singles? Six. Yeah. <laughs> Six. Sorry, excuse me. And, uh, and really kind of dominated that corner of the internet and Amazon being somebody who, you know, was very proficient and, and well received writing these little kind of novellas, really. I mean, they're longer than short stories, but shorter than your typical book. And so now you're on the precipice of releasing your first book book. I swear I'll make it up to you, um, which is inspired by your probably your best selling Kindle single, the long run, but uh, but also very very different. I mean, this truly is a it's a memoir and it operates on many levels. On the one hand, it is an addiction memoir. Uh, it's very much about addiction and recovery. It's about running, but I think at its core, it's a journey of one man to kind of reconcile his relationship with his father. Is that a fair? An accurate statement. That, that, that's much more. Uh, that's more. Much more articulate Is than it? I could be about it. Yes. And uh, and I gave. I read the book. I was. I was lucky enough to get an early galley copy of the book. I tore through it on one airplane flight in one sitting, and uh, I was expecting it to be much more like the long run than it than it ultimately is. It really became something very different and its own thing. And you really kind of took. Uh, you know, what you put down in the long run and, and, and really kind of, you know, went next level with this. And I've never read any better writing from you. I think your, you know, your, your talents with the pen, uh, you know, really went to the next level. And so I'll just read my, uh, I was going to read the blurb that I gave you, but I'm not seeing it on the back of the. <laughs> <laughs> the galley, I think, you know what? I didn't get it to you in time for the galley, right? So yeah, it's going to yeah. be on the back of the the real book. Yeah, it's going to be on the back of the book. But I, uh, so I can't. But I said nice things about it, and I meant those things because I really was moved by this. I think it's an extraordinary, exceptional piece of writing. Um, and the last thing that you should be is sheepish about sharing it with people and encouraging them to read it. And I'm encouraging everyone to read it. I think it's really an extraordinary book, and I'm super proud of you. Thanks, man. Thank you. I mean, I, um, you know, I mean, I, I said this to you off, Mike, but I, I mean, I'll say it again that, uh, uh, you, you know, that you were sort of sitting on my shoulder while I was writing a lot of this, you know, that the, you know, the conversations that we've had and the, um, I, if I'm feeling good about stuff, I feel like I've got a friend in you. Mm-hmm. If I'm feeling bad about stuff, I feel like I've got a friend in you, you know, and, uh, you know, cause you and I've been through, not not that our um not that our experiences have been totally similar but um uh but there there have been enough sort of big uh you, you know convergences in you know that we're both uh you know sober alcoholics and um both found a certain kind of salvation through uh endurance mm-hmm. um and keep talking dude i just realized i didn't turn the mic on on the camera <laughs> 
this this wouldn't and I be was preoccupied. So th- th- this uh, this wouldn't be a uh, a Mishka ritual experience without our <laughs> typical difficulties. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, Sorry about that. Not technical difficulties, typical difficulties. Right. But um, but no, I mean, you know, having you as a friend and, our, you know, our, our friendship, um, you know, sort of gave me courage to go a lot of places with this that I wouldn't have otherwise. And, you know, also, you know, the the process of the process of selling a book, um, you need to present your publisher with an outline and, and sort of a compelling package, like a media deck of, you know, what what the product is going to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had to do that and it felt totally false to me. I felt like it was just so much bullshit, you know, the, uh, an elevator pitch for the, the most painful part of my life. Uh-huh. It just, you know, um, I hated it. And, um, and then fortunately I had, um, an incredibly supportive agent, uh, bird level and, uh, an incredibly supportive editor, uh, Ben Adams, um, who let me, if you're, if you're carving a piece of plastic, you can sort of just make it do whatever you want because it's a piece of plastic. If you're carving a piece of wood, wood has its own grain mm-hmm. and it will sort of push your hand the way that it wants it to go. And either you fight against that or you, you go with it. And when I was telling this story, I, I found that um, the story that I pitched and the story that wanted to be told were very different things. And so I, I just I had to follow the story and I found more and more that it was about the subject that I was the most reluctant to write about and a subject that I've rarely um, that I've I've written very little about, which is my relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. And um, and. I didn't want to write about it at all, and I hated writing about it, and I'm very proud that I did, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe set the stage by kind of synopsizing uh, a little bit about your story and the story that unfolds in the book, if somebody is brand new and is listening to this and doesn't know who you are or doesn't know anything about you. Um, I was kind of a misfit kid. I, you know, I had a hard time getting along with other kids in school. Uh, this, this will be hard for you to, hard for you to, to believe, but I was, uh, I was sensitive. I easily got You're my sensitive artist. This is why, <laughs> look, book publishing, just like the music business, like the movie business, like any artistic, you know, endeavor that involves commerce is the merging of art and commerce, right? So you're, you're good at the sensitive artistic aspect of it, but there's also the kind of business end of it that obviously makes you a little uncomfortable, which is a good thing because, you know, because the artist should be the artist. But the truth is in this day and age, you can't sort of, you know, it used to be like, oh, if you, if you were the publishing company takes care of that end of it for you or the the music label does that. But now you really have to be that yourself. You have to like be your own little entrepreneur around your creative output. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I interrupted you with a, with that jag. <laughs> Go ahead. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got picked on a lot as a kid and we moved a couple of times when I was really young. Uh, my father was, uh, a, a nuclear physicist and, uh, um, he traveled a lot. He was, um, he was pretty distant. It was, it was clear to me very early on that, um, that my older sister was his favorite and that he could sort of, 
you know, give a shit about me. Um, I started drinking when I was, uh, probably 13. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, when I was 15, I, I'd been, I'd been in trouble at school, been in trouble for fighting. And, uh, and also, you know, I'd done really well, you know, in academics. And I started a program at a school called Simon's Rock, which is an, an accelerated program. It's a college program for high school kids. So I left to go to Simon's Rock. And then when I was at Simon's Rock, there was a shooting. Um, a guy got an assault rifle and uh, shot six people on our campus and killed two of them. And he had enough ammunition for all of us. And then I found out the next day that my parents were going to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. And when that when the school shooting happened, you know, where were you? How close were you to the line of fire and real danger? Um, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, you know, my impulse is to say I was never in any danger um, because, you know, I minimize everything. Um, but uh, Wayne Lowe, the shooter, he was on my basketball team. Um, I, you know, I'd had several encounters with him. He asked me if I could get him a gun. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I saw him earlier that night, and I always made a point of saying hi to him, not because I wanted to be friends with him, but because I wanted him to know that, like, his whole um, – his attempt to intimidate the entire school, that, like, it didn't work on me, you know, that I wasn't going to – I wasn't going to um, – I wasn't going to be cowed by him. Uh-huh. I would just. What I, kind of kid was he? I mean, was it like a trench coat mafia type situation? Or no, he was an uh, outsider. Was there any indicia that this kid was capable of something like this? Uh, you know, he was. Uh, he was eighteen. He was kind of a jock. Uh, he was really into the New York hardcore scene. He was, um, you know, obsessed with this band, sick of it all. Um, who are good dudes who bear zero responsibility for what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but he was, uh, you know, the scientific term for what he was is an asshole. Uh, he was, it's um, weird that a jock would, I mean, that's not, that's not the prototypical you know, type. Right. Yeah. Person. It's, it's, you know, it, it's always the, you know, the kid with the black nail polish, you right. know, that's how it always, it's always portrayed in the, in the, in the, uh, in the movies. But no, he was, uh, he was outspoken that, um, you know, anyone with HIV should be quarantined on an island, if not put to death. And that, uh, you know, Jews and African Americans were inferior. And, uh, he was a big Rush Limbaugh fan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, this was a pretty liberal school in the Northeast, you know, so that, that was, uh, you know, incredibly radical views for him, you know, for him to hold. And he just sort of, uh, you know, did everything and anything that he could to, um, alienate everyone and anyone outside of his specific circle of friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, he was just a hard ass and he was an unpleasant guy. Um, you know, and I, I ran into him that night and I said, you know, uh, how's it going? And he said, good, man. And he smiled at me. And that was the first time he'd ever responded. And the first time mm. that he had responded with a smile. Wow. And then, uh, an hour, an hour and a half later, he started shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were you in your dorm room? Where were you? Uh, yeah, I was in my dorm room with a friend of mine. We were studying for my physics final and I heard the shots and, uh, it sounded like firecrackers. And I said, firecrackers sound like guns. Firecrackers are super loud. Guns sound like firecrackers. That's a fucking gun. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my first impulse was <laughs> to run toward it, to try and stop it. And so I ran out of my room, and uh, the resident assistant was like, get back in your room. Uh, Wayne's got a gun. 
And, uh, and so I was like, I know, I know, you know, and then like, you know, I was like, you know, let's go, let's get him, you know, and he was like, no, get back, you know, he sort of screamed at me like, no, get back in your room, lock your door, turn off your lights, get on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was, he was scared and scary enough that I listened to him. We went back in the room and, uh, you know, I heard the shots. I heard people screaming. Um, I heard people stop screaming and, uh. I, you know, and I could see people running from the library, uh, people I knew and, uh, and then we waited and we waited and my friend wrote out his will and then, uh, we saw the cops leading Wayne away, uh, in handcuffs, mm-hmm. you know, and two, two people were killed. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, uh, a friend of ours. Galen Gibson and a professor, uh, Nakunan Saez. And so when you see these school shootings going on with, with just, you know, incomprehensible regularity and the unwillingness of, you know, our, our political system to really, you know, marshal resources to arrest it. Uh, and then in the wake of kind of President Obama's recent activities, and what is that, you know, as somebody who has lived it, you know, experienced it firsthand, what is your perspective? I lose my fucking mind, Rich. I lose my mind that, you know, I'm on the cusp of getting my American citizenship. I love this country. I love the people here. I've... I've been to every state except Hawaii. I've played gigs in most of them. I've been hammered in most of them. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, you know, I, I think America is, is is capable of so many great things, and that we cling to this savagery as our right and our like sort of our our bloodline. It's just such fucking bullshit and it it breaks my heart. And every time, you know, I'm still, I'm still in touch with a lot of my classmates from Simon's rock and like, um, you know, people who, people who didn't hear the shots, people who didn't see blood, people who didn't know anyone there, they're forever changed. Their lives have been transformed from being that close to death and terror because that's what it is. It is terror. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, and it is terrorism, you know, in, in every regard, um, you know, we've all, we've all been changed by, we've all, you know, we were all transformed from it. And, uh, (laughs) and in the numbers game, that shooting was nothing. Right. It was, it was very, it was small beans. Right. No, it doesn't even, it doesn't even show up compared to the things that happen, once a month or twice a month now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have, I have friends, you know, my family, you know, mostly lives in rural Canada and, you know, most of them are gun owners and they hunt and I, I support that. Um, that's, you know, that's how they feed their families. You don't need a fucking assault weapon mm-hmm. to hunt deer. It's absolutely insane. The, the purpose of an assault rifle is to kill the most amount of human beings in the shortest amount of time possible. That's what that gun is designed for. Mm-hmm. There's no reason anyone needs one mm-hmm. unless we're at war. And the only war that's going on in America is psychopaths against children. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's it's quite something that for whatever, you know, political 
reasons we can't get it together to come to some kind of consensus to solve this problem. And, you know, look, I don't want to get caught in the weeds and a crazy political argument about this, but to me, it's self-evident. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, things kind of shake out uh, in the wake of, you know, Obama's insistence that we kind of get serious about this. So we'll see if, if anything really happens or not, but I'm, it's starting to, you know, it's, it's reached, it's beyond a crisis point. You know, yeah. it's insane what's going my, on. My, you know, my critique of Obama's executive action is, uh, that it's not enough and that it's too late. Yeah. I don't think it's enough either. <laughs> I know. But anyway. and, and also, you know, I mean, after Sandy Hook, you know, like sh- shit, if that didn't convince people, then no, I mean, you know, like, you know, almost 30 dead children. You know, if that doesn't convince people, nothing ever. Right. And what happens is these these events transpire and there's the public outcry and then the sort of, you know, knee jerk, uh, you know, sort of response where we all kind of lament what had happened and, and, and thoughts say and this, prayers. Yeah, there's thoughts and yeah, exactly. So there's been a lot of political think pieces written about, you know, this sort of empty <laughs> <laughs> sentiment that goes with that as if that has somehow addressed the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So you're you're this sensitive kid. You you undergo this tragedy. Your parents get divorced. Your dad basically splits, and and there's a lot of emotional trauma, not just with the divorce, but this desire to you know not just have approval from your dad, but but basically to feel safe and loved by him. That I think you know really impacts you emotionally in a very profound way. That I'm not sure you were you became conscious enough conscious of <clears throat> fully until the process of, you know, putting pen to paper on this book. Well, I think, I think that was a des- desire I had as a child and then a, d- a desire that I had much later, uh, when I was 15 and the shooting happened and then I found out my parents were getting a divorce. I just wanted to kick his ass, man. And I, and, and I thought so low of him. I was like, you know, you're a coward in no way are you a man. You're you're a weakling. You're the worst. You know you're you're so pathetic. And I was split. I was I was in. Well, that's the thing is, you know, most of my my parents or most of my friends, their parents had already split up, and uh, you know, so I understood that. Um, But he didn't try and divorce my mother. He tried to divorce all of us. It was like he tried to unwrite us tried to pretend that that had never happened Mm -hmm. and for somebody to try and erase you from the record it's it's incredibly hurtful and and uh it it both makes you it makes you incredibly defiant like no i will be i will be capital letters i will be bold i will force you to pay attention to me yes i will you're gonna have to reckon with me because as much as you're trying to unwrite me from your life like i'm still here and i'm knocking yes i will be the loudest paragraph (laughs) you've ever seen (laughs) yeah and also it makes you want to capitulate and be unwritten you know and 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 so those were the two sort of warring sentiments that i had as a as a teenager and a young man to just be like you know fuck you i will not be denied i'm i'm here mm-hmm. and like and nobody's going to make me go away and then when i was feeling bad i was like you know where's the delete key mm-hmm. i'm i'm ready to go 
Yeah, it's a weird uh, psychological disposition to be able to be in both of those places simultaneously. You know, like well, a weird quantum physics thing. To it's it's that thing that we always talk about as alcoholics, where you. I can, was going to say it connects perfectly yeah, with alcoholism, right? Which is this notion that you can feel like you have all the answers and you're better than everyone. This superiority complex mashed up against this profound sense of unworthiness, you know, that, that you should be unwritten, not only from your father's life, but from the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to, to feel both of those at the same time is a very unique thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that is, you know, talked about a lot with alcoholism. Alcoholics tend to have that kind of complex. And, you know, it was, it was just compounded by the shooting too. Because to to have you know endured that with all with my friends and my peers and my community, you know, that was a massive thing. And by comparison, my parents getting divorced was fucking nothing, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, I think my friends perceived it as you know, like, man, look at this wicked hangnail that I have. It really hurts. You know, and, and so nobody gave a shit about what I was going through, you know, or how it felt to me. Everybody was just like, you know, shut up, man. Mm-hmm. You know, and also, um, you know, my friends had been through, you know, one of my closest friends then and now, uh, my buddy Zach, you know, his father came out in high school and his parents separated and he was like, you know, my parents' divorce was more painful than anything you can ever in- imagine. Mm-hmm. So shut up, you crybaby, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, that that sucked. But also, I mean, I think he was 17 at the time, you know? Like, I right. got to forgive him for feeling that and for saying that. You right. Know? You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, 
translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Being scarred in this way at this age then kind of sets the stage for this path that you begin to blaze into, you know, profound, unhealthy behavior patterns. Like how does this, you know, begin to manifest in your, in your life path? I, uh, when I was 16, I discovered, uh, Johnny Cash and I discovered Charles Bukowski mm-hmm. and, uh, and that, and in the, you know, with the absence of my father, um, I was just like, oh, this is, this is what it means to be a man. This is how you be a man is, you know, um, it's fucking just drinking and being a hard ass, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, self-reliance. Yeah. Um, you know, you, uh, you know, never let them, never let them see that you're in pain. Never, uh, never capitulate, you know, um, you just, you know, got those middle fingers standing tall at all times. Mm-hmm. And, and meanwhile, and a life without compromise. Yeah. You know? it, it, meanwhile, in the wake of the divorce, like things start to really unravel, you know, even more because there's a lot of economic disruption, you know, to yeah. say the least, because your mom's kind of left high and dry and yeah. there's a lot of moving around. And, and, and then there's the guilt that comes with the realization that this school that your, that your parents worked hard to put you in was the cost that kind of ultimately was the reason why you lost that house that you hated anyway, but yeah, kind of yeah, left, we, you, left you without a home. Yeah. The spring after the shooting, uh, we lost our house to the bank and, uh, I still remember in, in vivid detail this, you know, this yard sale that we had that just sort of stretched on interminably where, um, our neighbors and people in the town, people that we we really hadn't liked, and people who had like who hadn't liked us, came and sort of picked through all our belongings, you know. And uh, you know this this family relic that's incredibly meaningful to you, you know, uh, forty cents is that's much too much. For, uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you ten cents, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I was just enraged, just like sixteen years old and shit faced, and just I fuck you all, you know, just so angry, you know, and like. And having people look, you know, and, and having people look at us and condescend to us, you know, that like, oh, you're poor. Oh, you don't have any, oh, your parents are falling up. You know, your, your parents are going to divorce. You can't, um, you're losing the house. Just all this, uh, shame and feeling that, you know, that, that we weren't worthy. And then, uh, I was, I was utterly convinced and I remain convinced for probably up until writing this book. <laughs> That it was my fault, you know, that it was my school that had, um, that but actually that comes later parents. though, because initially the anger is, is directed at your dad for how, for, for allowing this to happen, right? It wasn't until later that you had some realization or self awareness that allowed you to really get like, oh, actually it wasn't, you know, the fact that my parents were irresponsible. It was that they decided to pay for this thing that they couldn't afford. And it's really, it was really like my fault. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it, it came, it came much, much later that I, that I realized that it wasn't, you know, that it wasn't just on me. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was you know during that yard sale, I really had that epiphany that I was like, oh, it's all my fault. Uh-huh. It's you know, well that this, that's a when, hard thing for a kid to bear. And man. when you describe this this yard sale in the book, I mean, it's heartbreaking because not only is it you know tragic in all the ways that you just described, at the same time, it starts raining. And then everything gets ruined, right? And that's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. My um, my mom, you know, has always, you know, since I was a little kid, you know, she was always, you know, the sort of like mama bear, you know, protecting us and defending us and always my best friend. And like, and she always, you know, she just, she has this attitude that like, um, any bad thing that, you know, that comes into your life is, is a good thing, you know, that like, oh, you know, we, we plan to go to the beach today with the kids and out of the blue, it, it, you know, it's a huge thunderstorm and she's like, wow, well, look at, look at that lightning. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen lightning like that since I was a kid. Let's make some cookies and then we'll do jigsaw puzzles right. and that terminally you know, optimistic. Yeah. And it fucking drives me nuts, man. Cause like, I, <laughs> nothing gets her down and nothing gets me up you know like i i don't know i can't believe i'm her child because you know we just have such opposite um but she's been amazing in your life i mean she really has been the rock and the strength and 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 has been your biggest champion and cheerleader from day one to this day but that day of the last yard sale she crumbled right and you had to you had to be the support for her yeah in that moment. And, and i had to and to, that it kind of i got the impression that that was really the first time that you had to step up it's almost it was almost like your initiation into manhood like you had to really get outside your own anger and take care of someone else yeah yeah and that was and also um man to see your parents cry or to see your parents, you know, to catch your parents in a moment of weakness, you know, because, you know, as you're, I mean, I was 16 at that time, but, you know, there's still, you still see your parents as sort of basically like immortal or, you know, superheroes or, or something, something more than you are, mm-hmm. you know, and to see her cry and to see her break down and to see, and I mean, she collapsed, you know, I mean, she couldn't walk, you know, and I had to carry her into the house and, uh, and I was like, fuck, it's, it's up to me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all on me. Like my dad's gone. My sister was away at school, you know, and you know, my younger sister, you know, uh, so I, I, I had to take care of her and, uh, and I had to, and I was 16 and I had to be a man and I had no fucking idea how to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Meanwhile, the drinking starting to escalate and we didn't even get into, you know, the, the sort of adopted brother <laughs> that yeah. comes into your life. Yeah. Chung, the Vietnamese guy. Yeah. Chung was awesome. God. And, uh, was so, I mean, it's such a so weird cool. thing. Like you're living in, it's New Hampshire, right? Yeah. You're in New Hampshire. You have this adopted younger brother from a completely different culture who's equally, you know, alienated from his peers and and lonely and, you know, kind of, you know, has his own anger issues and all of that and becomes your your ally and your best friend until ultimately he he disappears on you as well, you know, sort of exacerbating this pattern of abandonment and the trauma and wreckage that that, you know, then causes you which creates this vicious cycle of perpetuating and throwing kerosene on all of these unhealthy behavior patterns that catapult you into new york city yeah yeah (laughs) i uh 
a, a quick correction. Chong was older than me. He was a couple okay, years right. older. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, it was just it. it there was that serial abandonment. You know that um, everything in any any pillar of support that you'd experienced as a child, like okay, that's gone. Now that's gone. Now that's gone. And it was just that uh, everyone you love will leave you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone will betray you. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, which you know, perfectly for- which perfectly suits someone who is you know, idolizing the man in black and that kind of life ethos of, you know, a guitar slung around your back and, and, you know, heading out on your own to seek your destiny without any help from anybody. Yeah. To be a teenager with a drinking problem, to have that shit, you know, people, you know, when, when you're convinced that everyone's out to get you and then people are actually out to get you. (laughs) It uh, the, yeah, things things go to sh- go to shit pretty quickly. Right. Well, let's let's fast forward it to New York City and uh, the pursuit of the rock and roll dream. I uh, I moved to New York when I was twenty one with three hundred dollars, which which in a life of stupid things may have been just the stupidest decision I ever made. Yeah, but so, you, you always hear stories like that from other people who become mad successful, you know, so temper that against well, the reality but, that actually that works out for certain people. And you can make the argument as much as you might resist it, that still that decision to move to New York with $300 in your pocket ultimately did uh, create this successful human that sits before me. Uh yes. But um, we don't hear, we don't necessarily hear the stories of the people who moved there with three hundred dollars who didn't make it. Far more, you know. I I remember walking to a walking to a party at my like my friend's loft or something when I was twenty one or twenty two, and I saw a girl, uh, blonde girl, um, you know, wearing a long coat, and and she looked like she was. My age or a little bit younger, like, and I, I remember her face, you know, blonde with, you know, with blue eyes, and she looked, you know, incredibly sweet and incredibly, she looked like a nice girl, mm-hmm. you know, and um, as I was walking past her, she opened her coat and she was wearing lingerie and she said, you're looking for a date? Mm-hmm. And it fucking broke my heart, man. And it still breaks my heart, you know, I, what happened to her? You know, and then the party that we were going to that night, uh, it was a spot that my friends, like wealthier older brother, had just taken over, uh, and it had been a fucking brothel, and there were signs printed on the walls. Uh, remember the old printer paper that had the holes on the sides to spool? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was printed like that, and it was this sort of like, you know, ghetto, you know, sort of like, you know, 90, 94 era um you know graphics and it said um uh uh tipping is you know per, as per management tipping is now mandatory and that was basically saying you had to give your girl a little right. something extra mm-hmm. you know and, and to me i mean that they were printed you know printed in the sort of mid 90s font with the paper strips still, still on the on just <laughs> so depressing right still thinking about that just makes my heart plunge (laughs) (laughs) it's easy to romanticize b 
being 20 something in New York City around that time because there was also a lot of excitement and oh, there's yeah. this palpable, like undeniable sense of possibility as hard as it might be and as depressing and as often as you're confronted with situations like that, there's also this idea that this is where you come when you have a dream, right? Mm -hmm. And looking back, like, you know, I'm 49, you've, you're, you're well past that era to reflect back on that and think, oh, so amazing, you know, but then to really get into the details of it and realize like, there's a lot of darkness too. Yeah, yeah. I um I think of that movie um I think it's uh the 300. It's that sort of corny I think it was like Greek or Roman sort of oh, action movie. Gerard Butler. Movie, and yeah. uh you know I, I think when the ki you know when the male children are sort of 8 or 9 years old they sort of throw them you know basically to the wolves and it's this you know sort of savage underground Who and survives. whoever survives you know they come out and they mm -hmm. become warriors and that's sort of what New York was like at that time you know when you're when, when I was 21 mm -hmm. you know it was it just chewed you up you know um and and also it was uh you know, so, um, so tantalizing because, you know, it's sort of, it was sort of like, um, you know, having, uh, you know, like having, having rockets launch out of the ghetto or something like that, you know, think about, um, you know, in Eritrea or Sudan or something like that, you know, ro rocket launches from there, you know, because there'd be, you know, people we were, you know, sort of like, well, I have enough, you know, quarters here to buy a Jameson at Motor City and you go and, you know, drink with somebody and then, oh, that, that's, you know, ends up that those guys were Queens of the Stone Age mm -hmm. or, you know, right. you know, Karen O from Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's. Right. The or, juxtaposition you know, of living on top of people and the very the very real possibility that yeah there are people that actually do you know lots of them make it yeah and there was a time where it seemed like everyone had made it except for me <laughs> <laughs> so you're here and you're working these terrible jobs with terrible human beings i mean you describe <laughs> like was it bergdorf's the guy that you worked oh, for God. there when you were working in some basement like basically you know pushing numbers around a spreadsheet or whatever it was that you were doing so horribly depressing and yet holding on to this idea of becoming a musician and, and looking back on it now do you feel like that that dream that pursuit of trying to make it as a musician in new york how much of that was really about the music and the art and how much of that was being driven by this anger and this desire to be recognized and heard and accepted i think you know I really enjoy music now. I like learning a new chord inversion that I can play on a different spot on the neck of the guitar and stuff like that. Um, when I was 21, 22, I think I really wanted to hurt my father and get laid. And that's what I wanted mm -hmm. out of. I wanted, uh, you know, music being a vehicle. To yeah. Do that. Yeah. That it, it was a, um, you know, a vehicle for transformation, you know, and that if, if 
if we arrange these chords in the right order, you know, sort of like a Powerball, you pick the right numbers, put them in the right order, then your number is going to come up. Then every woman who's ever turned you down when you were 15 or 17 or whatever, whoever broke your heart, they'll all be so sorry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they'll, they'll beg for you back, you know, and, uh, you know, my father, you know, he would see that, you know, not just that I was, that I was worthwhile or deserve, you know, deserving of love, but I would, I would somehow have power over him and he would be like, you know, Hey, I was, you know, calling to see if I could get, you know, tickets for the show on Saturday night. And I'd be like, sorry, dad sold out, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like just juvenile fantasies yeah. like that, you know, just, <laughs> it's kind of amazing when you think of the extent to which an unhealthy relationship with a parent can just completely forge character and and drive decision making uh, on that level, right? And as a parent myself yeah. with with young children, that's so terrifying because you know I'm not a perfect parent. I'm probably going to screw them up, and they're going to be complaining when they're you know your age about like what I did wrong. And to think that something that I'm not doing or doing wrong is going to impact them and make them make unhealthy decisions in their own life is, is the most frightening thing I can imagine. It's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a parent. Yeah. <laughs> I, it terrifies You're me. Blocked by fear though. Yes, absolutely. You know, you can't let fear, I mean, you can't, you do the best you can, you know, yeah. but then you don't want to be that parent's like, where the kid's like, well, he did the best he could. <laughs> you know? I think like, I say those exact oh, words sorry. in this book. Yeah, about I, my know, dad. I know, yeah. I know, All right, I know. So- I had a moment the other day. You know, I, I'm living with my sister now, and she has four little kids. And uh, the oldest is a boy, and then there's the two girls, and then the youngest is a boy. And Kai, the youngest, is a, he's a little bully. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he'll hit the girls. And, you know, the, the girls are nice, so, like, they won't hit him back. Um, you know, but Mika, if he ever hit Mika, you know, Mika would knock him down. So he doesn't hit Mika. So I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm seeing that, that he's getting, um, he's getting the information that it's not okay for him to hit boys, but it's okay for him to hit girls. That's not a solid message. And so I saw him hit one of the girls the other day and I fucking, let him have it. I yelled at him and I mm-hmm. scared him. And then I was like, Oh Christ. Now I've given him the message that it's okay to hit women as long as you don't get caught. <laughs> well, I mean, oh how God. do you know you gave him that message? If you're saying don't do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, you, you can second guess yourself again and again and again, you know, when it comes to the decisions you make and it comes to raising children and stuff like that. But at the end of the, you know, you Kai's going to be okay. He's going to be, he's not going to be an abuser. Mm-hmm. He's, um, uh, I didn't scar him the other day. You know, he still loves me. That's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing as a parent, you don't realize the effect that uh, yeah. things that you don't even give a second thought may have. You know what I mean? Cause I'm sure you've had this experience of, of communicating with your father or your mother and saying, remember that time when you like something you've been harboring forever. Right. And just grinding on as a resentment. And they're like, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Like I, it was probably something that they said or did without even giving it a second thought. Here's that lodges in the, the young mind. And one, one of the things I grappled with in this book is that it's, it's all, I'm recalling it from memory. 
you know right. so it, it's so hard incredibly unreliable you know, yeah device. And it, it's um we imagine memory to be something that um that you know records or preserves the truth and that's not what it does at all it transforms what happened um and one good example is um i i used to be plagued by nightmares when i was a kid i mean i still am but i i sort of know how to manage it better now in, in adulthood and i was having a nightmare one night and my mom and you know probably you know five or six and my mom said you're sleeping curled up in a ball and that's why you're having nightmares if you just sleep straight just straighten out then you won't have nightmares and i was like really and i tried it you know because if my mom said it was true then it had to be true true. so i tried and it worked it absolutely worked i slept if i slept straight i didn't have nightmares and then you know so probably you know 20 years later I I said, mom, you know, thank you so much. Like that gift you gave me when I was a kid of explaining that to me, that if I slept curled up in a ball, I would have nightmares. And that if, you know, if I, if I straightened out, you know, that I wouldn't have nightmares. (laughs) And she looked at me and she was like, Mishka, I, I never, I never told you that. Yeah. And I said, bizarre thing. Like, there's no way that's true. And I said, what? And, and she said, no. I fucking had it with you. And I said, straighten out. Like, stop. Like, right. Stop this this behavior. Which is, it's a British ism Mm -hmm. of basically saying, you know, stop being a pain in my ass. Straighten out. Start acting right. And in my mind, I was like, oh, if I straighten out, then I'll. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's super funny. All right. So you're this cyclone barreling your way through Brooklyn. uh, Booze pills uh, a lot of relationship wreckage yes. you have a stalker there's all kinds of chaos happening like all yeah. around you right and the wheels are falling off the wagon so just just give us like a paint it paint a quick picture of of you know the the perverse alcoholic that you were um it's perverse should i have used a different word <laughs> no <that> might, <laughs> might be the perfect word um you know perhaps too perfect i remember being uh 18 or 19 um in a writing class and my professor telling a story about how he um how he like bottomed out on coke and he found himself um, you know, his bottom was, uh, sort of searching the cracks in the floorboards to see if any Coke had fallen through there. And that if, um, and that was, that's when he had his epiphany that he was out of control. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing that a lot, <laughs> like, uh, floor scores, which we, which we did every night, you know, I'd be working in the bar and you go around the floor to see if anybody dropped anything on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do those drugs. And, right. and sometimes it was Coke and one time it was methamphetamine and I was up for three days. Right. You know, of course you're going to um, do it. Yeah. It's like that test that they give you. Like, are you an alcoholic? You know, and <laughs> I mean, you know, I remember doing that test as a joke and I'm like, of course, of course, of course, of course. Like, yeah, well, of course yeah. you would do that. You I mean, people don't do that. You yeah, know, like you pussy. I had a perfect <laughs> score, you know, <laughs> Yeah. and I felt like this test isn't fair because. Almost everybody does this, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. What a one little, a friend said to me once, 
They said, Mishka, your what's remarkable about you is that you have life changing experience after life changing experience, and you never fucking change. <laughs> <laughs> you just have time after time something massive happens to you, and you just go right back to it. Mm-hmm. And um, well, this is hold on a second, put a pin in it because. This gets into kind of the spiritual discussion where we can have a wrestling match a little bit because I know your your distaste for this subject matter and your resistance to anything that even starts to inch towards this, you know, field of discourse. But you can perceive this as the universe trying to get your attention. Like when your life's not going in the right way and, and your head's banging against the wall and the wheels are falling off the wagon and you're again, time and time again, you're provided with evidence of why you might want to, you know, change your, your ways or, you know, take a look in the mirror and see how you're behaving. Um, <clears throat> the refusal to do that ultimately ends up in amplifying it until the result is inevitable. Like either you're going to die, you're going to go to jail, you're going to kill somebody else, or you're going to wake up and finally pay attention to what the universe has been trying to tell you all along, which is, look, man, you need to stop doing this. And if you do, I can give you a new life. <laughs> I knew we were going to get into this. <laughs> uh, we don't have I, to talk about it. No, we, we listen. One of the reasons that, uh, that I'd love having one of the reasons we're friends, we're not friends because we agree on so much. Mm-hmm. We're friends because we disagree civilly on so much and i i i always welcome conversations with you and discussions with you where we talk about the shit that we don't agree on Uh you know um you know i mean i think for you know some of this you know some i was talking about this with uh you know with um with robin one day you know we were on a run robin arzon and uh and you know i was like uh you know, I was like, ah, you know, I fucking, I love rich to death, but like, you know, there's some of the stuff Enough with the new age bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I like, you know, I, and I said to her, I, I was like, you know, I think some of it is just the lexicon because, you know, if he says, you know, like, oh, you need to surround yourself with people who, um, uh, vibrate at a higher level. Then I my eyes start to roll and mm-hmm. I start to shut down. And but uh, if I was to say you're the sum average of the five people you hang out with, right? Well, so if that, you're hanging out with people that are living the life that you aspire to live, that's essentially the same thing. But it's dispensing; it's a different vernacular. Exactly. So it's yeah. the vernacular yeah. that, that exactly, and that's and that's what with. I said to her is that I I said you know if Rich said to me. Um, you should spend, you know, more time around people who are driven, who have goals, who pursue those goals, you know, who, who actually chase their dreams and not just, you know, fucking binge on Netflix or whatever. Then I would be like, oh yeah, yeah, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, you know, I mean, I, I, I do some of this trend, you know, some of this sort of translation in my head because, um, because I think, you know, I think incredibly highly of you and, and I know that. I was thinking about this the other day because uh, Julie and I are talking about having me do her podcast. Right. And um, she hasn't asked me yet, though, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think because I have no musical talent. <laughs> 
I think we're I think we're going to collaborate on a song. That's cool. Um, which which would be awesome. But you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, you know, to, you know, because, um, you know, she believes in a lot of stuff that I don't believe in. Um, do I think she's full of shit? No. Um, you know, but I need to find a way to sort of reconcile, you know, that she believes in a lot of stuff that I don't believe in. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about is, um, close magic. If you, if you, if you're watching somebody do sleight of hand, um, you, you know, that the coin doesn't literally disappear. You can't see what's happening, but you know that there's something happening that you can't detect, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of things that I, that I hear from you or that I hear from Julie where that I don't immediately get, but I sort of file them away. Mm-hmm. And I know, I I, I know that there is something happening there. I know that I'm not seeing it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what, that's what faith is. It's proceeding, uh, even when there's no, evidence to support something Mm -hmm. in the rational tangible world you would uh you would laugh because i um when i was uh when i was teaching writing last summer you know one of the things that i said to um at yale by the way for people that are listening (laughs) (laughs) why do you have to out me for that i want people to think it's at a community the guy the dirty shirt and the shark shark that what do you call long like you're wearing cut off jean shorts like who does that man i do (laughs) you're the only guy that i know who wears cut off jean shorts and they're like below the knee right (laughs) what do you call those like uh no they're called shants Right, <laughs> Gene Shantz. That's a slur, right. man. Is the same guy <laughs> who's teaching it, teaching writing at Yale. Um, but you know, one of the things that I said them uh, that I said to them is that um, you know, logical thinking will, um, y- you know, reason and rational thinking will it'll help you climb the mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, that it'll take you from one step to the next step to the next step to the next step. But it's only faith. That will um, give you the courage and give you the power uh, to jump off the mountain and fly, you know, and in in writing and in all creative pursuits, there has to be that moment where, you know, where where either, you know, where you move to New York with three hundred dollars when, you know, when you're 21 and you say, well, I know the chances are against me surviving, you know, or, you know, not just surviving, but me making it as a, as a musician or a writer. I, I understand that the deck is stacked against me, but I have faith mm-hmm. that I can do it, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, I think in your case, it's a, it's a function of faith butting up against stubbornness because I think a big sort of understated theme in your life and, and in your book and in your writing is, is this, is, is, is grappling with your own stubbornness. Like when the universe, Whatever I don't, you know, I don't have to use like that vernacular. <laughs> it's you know, okay. Like, I, just, I translate when the, it. In my when mind. the environment in which you're inhabiting is providing you evidence that something you're doing is not working, like whether it's your drinking and using, or it's your music career that's just not taking off, whatever it is, and your refusal to pay attention to that, like there's a heroism in that in some respects because you're going to plow forward and make it happen no matter what. It's that self-reliance, you know, but at the same time, that refusal to kind of 
pay attention to what the world is trying to tell you. And you see it also in, in, you know, your burgeoning writing career when the universe is starting to reward you for this writing and your refusal to acknowledge or pay attention to that and kind of pivot and move in that direction, like where everyone's kind of going, actually, you're getting a little success over here. Like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm a musician, right? This is what I'm doing. I don't care about that writing stuff. And you're saying, no, no, no. And the, and, and the universe, your world, your environment keeps knocking on your door and saying, hey, I'm the writing guy over here. Like, uh, come over here and uh, things might work out a little bit better for you. <laughs> and yeah. You're going, no, no, no. Yeah. Until finally, you know, it becomes so undeniable that you're, 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 you're forced to acknowledge it. Well, there's so much of it is, uh, is perception. If, um, but when you're under the influence of drugs and alcohol, you're, and when you're a functioning alcohol, functioning or non-functioning alcoholic, like your, your ability to accurately, objectively perceive your world is broken. Oh, yeah. Perception. And, and to this day, being a sober alcoholic, you know, my biggest problem is perception. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I really don't see the world the way that it is because it's so clouded by my own, you know, my own, you know, negative thought patterns, et cetera, that tell me otherwise. I, I, I absolutely agree. But, you know, the, um, you know, the thing, you know, whether, um, if somebody doesn't succeed, then we see them as stubborn. And if they succeed, we see them as determined. You know, if you look mm -hmm. at Jonas Salk or, you know, any sort of, you know, any, scientific pioneer you know people were saying uh you're crazy you're you know, crazy you're crazy you're crazy and then till suddenly it happens exactly right? so exactly finding that you know where's the fulcrum there yeah that's, yeah that's tough right yeah here's a you know we were talking about how your perception is broken when you're under the influence i um one time i did seven different drugs in one night mm -hmm. <laughs> what were the drugs Let's see. Uh, cocaine, mushrooms, uh, Percocet, Oxycontin, uh, Xanax, and Adderall. Adderall. What was the one pill that was really kind of like your preferred drug of choice? I forget the name of it. Oh, Opana. Opana, right. Yeah. I'd never even heard of that. I thought well, I knew all of it. Well, like, we'll get to that. Yeah, but let me get into that. Story. But yeah. So I did seven different drugs and then I woke up the next morning and I thought I was just going to be, you know, a bug. What is the, what is that like to be on all those drugs at the same time? <laughs> it's like, and was that over the course of an entire day or in one evening? Uh, that was an evening. Uh huh. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, it just has to be confusing. <laughs> it was definitely confusing. <laughs> it was, yes, that, that may be the perfect word. Uh -huh. It was confusing. I woke up the next morning and I felt less bad than I would have felt if I had just gone out drinking. Mm -hmm. And so I had that epiphany where I was like, I've been drinking too much. 
the right? solution to my problem is doing more of these other drugs. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and that was right. Up. I almost made it. I almost got the like, I got to stop drinking. And instead I was like, I, I need to do more drugs. Right. The solution to my drinking problem is to do more drugs. Of course. That's you know. the great obsession of every alcoholic, right? To be able to figure the, out yeah, a way magic to bullet. continue to yeah. do it. And it's always playing around with the different kinds of things that you're doing and the amounts. And if I can just get this mix just right, yeah. then I'll be sweet. I, um, a lot of times people, you know, and it's, it's generally Stanhope fans who, uh, who write to me, who, you know, who are like, you, you know, you, you quit drinking, you know, how do I do it? And yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of practicing alcoholics in the Stanhope <laughs> yes, fan crowd. Pra- practicing hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, God love them. Yes. And Hey, you know, and, uh, so I uh, I'll read their I'll read their message a, a couple of times or ask them a couple of different questions. And then often what I say is uh you're full of shit. You don't want to quit drinking. That's you what want, it is. You want to quit getting hangovers or you want to quit getting shit from your girlfriend or your wife when you get drunk or you want to quit getting DUIs because you know how to quit. You put the fucking drink down and you never pick it up again. That's how you quit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then they're like, you're an asshole and maybe I am, but, um, use caution when writing to the guy who didn't ask for help. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I quitting think, drinking. <laughs> I think, I think that, 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 that direct approach is refreshing. You know, because I get, I get, I get similar emails and I don't respond to them in that way. <laughs> I know, I'm I know you are. I should, gentle. Forward, I should forward mine to you and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little more gentle in it, but, but ultimately I try to get the, you have to get them to get to that place, right? Because they have yeah. to make that decision for themselves. You can't compel somebody to have that realization, but you're trying to accelerate that process. And I appreciate that. And I think you can extrapolate from that into, whatever problem it is that you're grappling with. Cause I get emails from all kinds of people about all kinds of different stuff. But the general theme is there's something in my life that's not working that I want to change. Like how did you change or how do I stop doing this so that I can start doing this? And I think in truth, most of these people, they already, they already know what to do. The core, there's no yeah. secret magic, you know, bullet or like life hack that is going to accomplish yeah. what they're, they're seeking. It's truly a matter of, you know, brass tacks, stop doing what you're doing and start doing the thing that you want to do. And that's tough to hear, you know, yeah. because people want to be told that there's an easier way, the easier, softer way. Right. And if <laughs> you're an alcoholic trying to stop drinking, drinking or using, they're, the answer they're looking for is, how can I keep doing what I'm doing, but not suffer the the negative repercussions of doing it? Yeah, right. The the easy way is to work incredibly hard. That's that's the shortcut. Right. Yeah, the <laughs> shortcut is to to work. Just the to shortcut work is off. to make it your absolute number one priority and yeah. be willing to do anything to get sober. And by yeah. anything, I mean anything. Yeah, that's the life hack. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, and it takes. Takes a lot of bullshit to get there, man. Takes right. a lot of pain, a lot of sadness, a lot of humiliation, a lot of wetting the bed, a lot of friends screaming at you to get there. It doesn't have to. It just does. It just usually does. <laughs> 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 it did for me. It did for you. 
you know, it's that thing that I, I say all the time on the podcast. But, you know, if your elevator is going down, it doesn't have to hit the hit the ground floor. You can get off at any time. That choice is available to you. It's just that when you're desperate and you're broken and you've lost everything and you're in so much pain that there's nowhere else to turn, that choice then becomes easier. And that the grace in that is that you're given the gift of willingness that you can step into that place of saying, okay, I'm ready to do anything. And by anything, I mean anything to get sober. Mm-hmm. When you still have stuff and you haven't really suffered enough, it's harder to prioritize it on the level that it needs to be prioritized in order to resolve it. Mm-hmm. And also the things that you learn um, in the process of getting sober, uh, you need to apply to other things in your life. And that was a big part of putting things back together with my father. All right. Well, before we get to that, before we get to it, we're still on uh, what it was like and what happened. Oh, okay. Before we get to what it's like now. But, but. You want to talk about Opana? Well, yeah, I want to hear about Opana and then I want to get into like the bottom. (sighs) This is why I love, like, (laughs) I love talking to recovered alcoholics and I love addiction memoirs because I can just be like, oh, yeah. Oh, Tell me more about how bad it was. You know, like I just love it. It's you know? like it's like like a well written addiction memoir is is literally it's like taking drugs for me. Like I can transport myself because I can relate so profoundly, and I feel like it's like a, it's like oh, I get it. Like you don't even understand how much I understand you. Yeah, it's like uh, disaster porn. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not. <laughs> it's not <laughs> Exactly. All right, Opana. Um, what is this? Well, I, I it took me a long time to figure out what it was. I uh, I was working a desk job for a construction company, uh, falsifying documents for them. Right, some like mafia guy or yeah, something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you know, I I love this because you know people are always like, oh, you know, the running you, you know, the running you do, it's damaging your body. It's you know, it's tearing you apart. You know, like you know, you're, it's so bad for you. Sitting at a fucking desk and doing Excel spreadsheets and sending faxes was far did far more damage to my back than anything any athletic mm-hmm. thing I've ever done. Um, but yeah, so I was in constant pain from my back from sitting at this job, and so a um my drug dealer slash girlfriend uh, turned me on to uh, Vicodin and then Percocet and then another drug dealer slash girlfriend uh, turned me on to Opana, which was, you know, this, this other thing, um, another pill. And so I remember I met up with her at motor city and I was like, Oh, it's going to sort of, you know, give me a buzz, you know, like the other ones. And, um, uh, and she handed me the the bottle of pills and I, you know, I chewed one up and she chewed one up and, uh, we had another drink and then we went to like go and get food. And by the time the food showed up, I was biting my tongue as hard as I could to not go fucking face down in my, my cheeseburger because it was so strong and it was so good. I just felt like my body was filled with love. And I felt, I felt amazing. I felt incredible. I felt, um, you know, like I could, 
like I could heal the sick, like I could put my hands on you and heal you, mm-hmm. you know, and also my eyes were crossing, you know, I mean, it was just so, so I, you know, scraped this, you know, and you know, my, the girl I was with was just falling apart. So I like paid for the food. We didn't eat anything, of course, you know, stuck her in a cab and gave the cab driver the address. And then I like walked back across Williamsburg bridge and I just felt like I was witnessing a miracle, you know, like this was just, this was the fucking greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, then it, it, it became my greatest project. It, it was, it was like that new thing, you know, like, um, you know, Oh, I just discovered yoga. I'm really into yoga or like, <laughs> you know, this was my yoga, you know, this is my, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Have you uh, heard of Opana? I'm practicing Opana. <laughs> I'm working my, on my Opana my, practice in my ashram. It, it almost sounds like some kind of. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> what? Is, so is it an opiate? What is it? Um, well, I, I only found out when uh, when I was starting. You know, shit started to go badly. Um, where I would, I would like nod off in the middle of a conversation, just go face down on the bar. I would wake up on the street or, uh, I would wake up like half in my apartment, half out where I like was able to get the door open and get the key in the lock. And then I was just like, okay, you just fall right just, down in the, gonna in sleep, the hallway, I'm just sleep right here yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, in bed with like my fucking cowboy boots on, you know? And, uh, and I had a, a, a series of just sort of hideous dreams of, you know, uh, uh, and, and very old woman was, uh, sitting on my chest and she had these enormous yellow eyes. And as she looked at me, uh, her, her mouth started to stretch towards mine until like her head didn't move at all, but her lips stretched all the way down to mine. And then she started to suck, uh, the breath out of my lungs and I knew that she was stealing my breath and that I was going to die. Mm-hmm. And I started having dream after dream about dead things and dead people. And, um, and then I, I would, when I woke up, how much up, of this were you taking as much as I could? Yeah. I mean, uh, how do you even get something so obscure? I, uh, maybe well, it's I, not that obscure. I'm just, I just, well, I'm unfamiliar with it. When, when I started to quit, like when I was like, I've, I've got to quit this thing. Like I, my, hu- <laughs> uh, I became convinced that my house was haunted. Mm-hmm. Not that the drugs I was doing were making me insane, <laughs> right. but that my house was haunted. Um, it's the Opana version of closing the shades and thinking there's helicopters outside yeah, that you yeah. do when you're doing meth. And well, and, and I, I couldn't tell the difference between when I was awake and when I was asleep. So my dreams would be like, just, you know, I, I couldn't, I was having nightmares and I couldn't tell that it was a nightmare. I was like, you know, this sh- people are really like peeling their faces off or, mm-hmm. you know, were you having hallucinations um, during the day? Um, no, not so much. I just, um, my days were fucking miserable. Um, and then, you know, the, the instant, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow myself to do drugs at work, but like, you know, the minute. I got off the subway. I'd go to a bar, crush a line on the back of the toilet there and fucking rail a couple of big pink lines or, and then it got to be that. So just crushing up these pills and, and, and inhaling them. Yeah. And then, um, and then it got to the point where I'd clock out, go to the bathroom in the building and then fucking do a line right there just to get me home on the train, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
when I went to quit, I was like, like, what the fuck have I been doing? And I looked it up and, uh, they, uh, they're actually stronger than pharmaceutical heroin. Mm. And they were in the seventies, they were known as blues and they were taken off the market because there were so many pharmacy robberies because, um, in drugstore cowboy that, that was, that the, was the drug, that, that was the stealing. drug that they were stealing. That uh -huh. was the drug that they wanted. Um, and then they, you know, had just sort of recently reintroduced it or, you know, brought it back. And, um, as some kind of pain management medication or, I mean, what is the legitimate, you know, it, it fucking managed the shit out of my pain, yeah. man. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I didn't feel anything. But it, so just a super powerful <laughs> opiate. Yeah. Yeah. And actually what, um, what clued me into the fact that I was in over my head is that, um, somebody gave me some morphine and I did morphine and I was like, this is fucking boring. Like I, I, you know, I don't feel anything compared to what I feel when I'm doing Opana. And then I was like, wait, I don't know what this shit is. Right. You know? And, um, and yeah, then like getting off of that was, I would imagine the withdrawal was horrendous. It was pretty, it was pretty brutal. Yeah. It was really, um, just the bed sweats and the whole thing for days. Yeah. I mean, I just remember like chewing up like handfuls of Advil and like, a leave and just like just lying there in fucking agony and mm -hmm. unable to sleep and unable to be awake and like um you know i i tried to drink my way through it you know which helped a little bit but um but yeah i mean it was really it's torture dude mm -hmm. it was really it really really sucked you know all right so where's the bottom well happened as you know, like the bottom has trap doors, man. And like, um, I feel like I was just sort of like nosing around the bottom for a long time. But what, uh, one of the bottoms for me was, uh, I've been fooling around with this girl who I'm, you know, who I met at a, uh, who I met at a show and, uh, you know, she said she was on birth control and, uh, and then she got pregnant and then I was like, since I was 15, I tried to live my life in opposition to my father. I tried to do the opposite of what he did. And I tried to do the, you know, I tried to, I tried to be strong where he was weak. And then having failed that. I was like, I'll just be a hellion where, you know, where he's been boring and lived his life, you know, sort of within the lines. And then, um, I was like, now I hurt every single person who comes into contact with me. I have old friends who, you know, have told me, I just, I can't bear to be around you anymore. Not because I don't love you, but because I do love you. And I, 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 I can't, you know, I can't stick around for the ending of this movie. And, uh, and also, you know, with this woman, I was going to create another unwanted kid, which is what I was. And, that's the that would just be the fucking worst it was thing. Almost like here we go back to you know 
the, I want to say the universe, but I'm going to say your environment concocting the worst case scenario for you. Like if your mission and all of your behavior is, is truly in opposition to your father and driven by this anger and this pain as a result of that abandonment, to then be faced with the very real prospect of becoming the guy who perpetrates the very act that caused you this pain, that's the ultimate wake-up call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, you can go to jail or you could have hurt somebody. You know, there are other things, but I'm saying <clears throat> it's almost, it was specifically concocted to get your attention. It appears that way, it doesn't does, it? It does, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, keep going. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it was it was sort of an epiphany that flowered open in several different ways. I mean, there were, um, you know, so there was that, that I was going to create another me. And I thought about, like, how much I had, uh, for a child to feel unwanted, that's just the lowest thing you know, possible. And that's the last thing I would ever inflict on any child ever. You know, my sister's kids, I tell them every day that I love them to the point where they're like, okay, like we know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and then also, uh, you know, the life that I've led, people have accused me of being a psychopath or a sociopath or not having any conscience. And the opposite is true. I, I know how much I've hurt people and it became abundantly clear that even for me to isolate myself so that I wasn't hurting anyone directly for me to isolate myself, um, you know, I, I, I'd hurt my family so much and that if I were to die like this, my final act on this earth would be to hurt them some more. Mm -hmm. and, well, that's a level of, of you know, self-awareness and recognition, at least. You know? And I think the other thing that comes into play that maybe a lot of people don't really fully understand or realize is that when you're accused of being that kind of guy and you actually are perpetrating acts that make people feel that way about you, on some level, however conscious you are of that, you are aware of it. And that causes its own pain, you know, to understand that you're that kind of person. And the only way to navigate through the world with that self-knowledge is to use more to repress all of that pain. So yeah. it becomes this cycle that you just can't break out of. Like you're hurting people and then it's so painful to yourself to know that that's what you're doing because of your selfish, you know, indulgency in your own addiction. The only way to kind of get through it is to use more so that you don't have to feel that pain, which yeah. of course perpetrates more damage and pain to others. And, you know, I, I also, you know, I realized that I'd done every single thing I could to prevent people from caring about me. You know, right. I said, don't, don't care about me. You know, I said it point blank and also behaved in a manner that was off putting, you know, to like just, try and alienate as many people mm -hmm. as possible. And I realized sort of that I was, uh, I was outnumbered and I was outgunned that, um, the people were always going to care about me and that people were always going to love me. And that 
I, I could never talk like never gonna be able to fucking talk my mother out of loving me. <laughs> you know, like that's, uh, you know, that's her, that's her number one, pri- you know, priority on this earth is to love her children, you know? And, uh, I realized that I was, you know, that I was on the wrong side of the battle, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I also realized that, you know, I think for a lot of alcoholics and, and addicts, their great epiphany comes, you know, that I, reala- I realized if I continued using that I was going to die. And my epiphany was different. My epiphany was that I realized that I was never going to die, that that's what I'd been gunning for. You know, they say, you know, they say whiskey's going to kill you. And I might, you know, and I would say, when? And, it was taking too long <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, uh, and I realized that I would, I would keep living in this like half life that my life would just be getting smaller and smaller and unhappier and unhappier and more and more debased. Yes. Yeah, it's different until, rungs in purgatory. Yeah. And, uh, until I would fear you know, fear life more than I fear death. And that's scarier than, than dying, mm-hmm. you know, to live a life that's, that's just torture like that. The, Were the, you, did you, do you really, did you really have that level of understanding? Like, yeah. Did you come yeah. To an understanding of yeah, that? Yeah. I had a vision of myself as like a stooped, you know, older man, you know, one of those guys who's like 58, but he looks like he's 89, you know, just used up, but somehow continuing to live mm-hmm. just, you know, that, um, just like a cockroach. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, powerless to live and powerless to die mm-hmm. and just sort of trapped in their life and just, you know, just going on and just going on and just going on. And, uh, and the thought of living like that scared me more than dying. And, uh, it fucking scared the shit out of me, man. I mean, it still does. And, uh, I was just like, this, this is it. This is the end. This is the absolute end, uh-huh. you know? And it's, it's funny because, you know, getting shipwrecked, that didn't, you know, that didn't stop me from drinking. You know, I had all sorts of like terrible things happen yeah and as terrible as that was it's still like an awesome story you know what i mean like that's just an awesome story to like go to the bar and tell people you know what i mean like you can kind of celebrate and romanticize that but i'd had you know i'd had things that uh that weren't cinematic you know that just sort of like you know humiliating bad things that had happened to me of you know yeah waking up in your own urine waking up on the street like you know missing you know important shit um and i just blew through all of that but then the the thing that made me stop drinking it was sort of like i just i had a thought you know and the mm-hmm. thought came into my head and it wouldn't leave me alone mm-hmm. and and i was just like i had a I had a telescope into the future and I was like, this is, this is the life you're headed for. And I just said, fuck that. Mm-hmm. And, and that pu- was it. I fucking pulled, pulled the emergency brake. That's it. We're yeah. done. We're done. Haven't had a drink since. I'm super proud to announce 
my next venture, Voicing Change Media, this beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. We can kind of skip ahead to something that's been going on recently with you, which is interesting. Um, which is how many you've been sober? How long now? Uh, end of May, it'll be seven years, seven years, right? So quite a bit of time. Um, and, uh, we got together, it wasn't that long ago, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And, and you confided in me, like I've been thinking about drinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm concerned. I've been thinking well, about I, drinking. I didn't say I've been thinking about drinking. I said, I made up my mind to start drinking. Again. Oh, I, I don't even remember it being that much. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you made up your mind to start drinking again. And I was like, all right, have a seat. It's time <laughs> to have a chat. Buckle up. <laughs> yeah. And we had a long talk about it and it was a great talk. And then you ended up writing, uh, writing about it and, and breaking public about it, which I thought was very courageous and ballsy. Um, because I think there's this perception amongst sober alcoholics that once you're sober or you've put together some time that, you know, cravings or that desire to drink is, is no longer a part of your life. And, and should you entertain, uh, you know, a desire to drink that that's a shameful act that you should certainly never tell anyone about. But it couldn't be further from the truth because as an alcoholic, our natural disposition is to drink. Every day that we don't drink, that is the, uh, you know, the errata on the balance sheet. Yeah. And so, of course, you're going to have moments where you're going to have a craving or you're going to have a desire to drink or you're going to wake up one day and say, you know, all that like stuff I've been doing with sober, like, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. You know, like that's, that's what happens. That is the pernicious nature of alcoholism. And so the way through that is to communicate about it and to not hide it because alcoholism loves secrets. And when you hold that as a secret, that's where it kind of gains its power until yeah. ultimately it manifests itself in taking that drink. And, uh, and then, you know, you're off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. The race to the bottom. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, I almost called you from Mexico because the, I was driving up to LA one night, uh, to do the comedy show with, uh, with Brett Erickson. And that's when I was having this internal monologue about drinking. And my thought was, I can't remember the last time I had fun. I, I don't have fun anymore. And mm -hmm. if I drank, at least I would have fun, mm -hmm. you know. Which and is like, just hold on a second, because that's insane, right? Like if you look at your life, since you've gotten sober, it's been a remarkable trajectory upwards, you know? And, yes, absolutely. And of course, and and... So it's hard to look at that and go, oh, well, like the other, the other side looks better. But again, that's alcoholism, right? Yeah. And that involves a tremendous amount of romanticization of your past. Like you forget 
what it felt like to be coming off Opana. You're just romanticizing what it was like to be at your favorite bar with your friends. Yeah, and, and exactly. And, and in that moment, all the all my accomplishments, all the you know, all the writing that I've generated, all the strides that I've made forward as. Um, you know, not just in sobriety, but in humanity, restoring relationships with my family. Um, none of that mattered because I, I just, I could, I could remember clearly sitting at the bar with my, with my buddies laughing so hard about nothing, just like, you know, laughing to the point that it hurt and like mm -hmm. it was so fucking fun. And we, just, you know, we just had a great time. And I just, I was like, I just, you know, you miss that. Yeah. I miss that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I made up my mind that night driving in. Okay. I'm going to, um, I'm going to start drinking again. I'll give myself like another six months and then I'll, I'll start drinking again. And I'm, I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad that I made up my mind to do that because I woke up the next morning and I went, holy fucking shit. Are you kidding me? No way. No way. Am I going to do that? Like that that's ridiculous that's totally out of the question and i think that had i not allowed myself to think about my life with alcohol back in it then i i would still feel tempted but then i you know i thought about oh well if i drink what will i drink where will i drink what will i do and then i started thinking i was like oh yeah oh and then when I woke up the next morning, I was like, man, fuck that. You know? Well, you, you, the technique that's been helpful to me is when you start to think like that, then you go, oh, and then what happens? And then what do I do then? Oh, and then the bar closes, and then where are we going to go? Yeah. And then I got to call the drug dealer. Do I still have the phone number? Okay, where are we going to go do the drugs? And you just keep playing it out yeah. until you're passed out you know, on the street and you can't find your keys or your wallet you know, or yeah. whatever it is. Like, yeah. Take it to its ultimate conclusion and then live there for a little bit. And that helps shatter that romantic idea of just I'm having a good time with my buddies. Yeah. One of the things that, that – one of the um, exercises that they had me do when I was in rehab like shortly after I arrived was intended to kind of you know, break that – you know, break that illusion is take 10 episodes in your life where, um, where things didn't go so well in your drinking and using, but take it from the beginning. Like, what was your intention? Well, I was going to meet my buddies at my favorite bar and we were going to laugh until our stomachs hurt. You know, that was the intention. What happened? Oh, I woke up, you know, in Las Vegas and I don't know how I got there and couldn't find my wallet and didn't know how I was going to get home, you know? And then who did it? How did it make you feel like really live in like what it felt like when you woke up, like just right now, like the most specific adjectives you can come up with, like really just paint the picture of what that felt like. And then how did it impact other people in your life? Like, oh, well, you know, my girlfriend was terrified. She didn't know where I was because I wasn't returning her call, like all the impact, like, because you have that idea, like, I'm not hurting anyone, man. I'm just trying to have a good time. Like, leave me alone. And that was really powerful to me to see, oh yeah, it never starts out with like, I'm going to, I'm going to pass out on the street. Like that's never your, that's not your intention, mm -hmm. you know, but to play it all the way through and then gives you an ability to kind of, you know, look through the microscope more objectively. One, one of the things that, uh, you know, having thought about this a lot in the last, uh, last couple of weeks, last couple of months is that, uh, yeah, I, so I suffer from depression. I get depressed periodically. 
And I thought that coming out uh, here to California for the winter would help, but I didn't realize how short the days are here in the winter time. Holy crap! I mean, you, you it's know, you the get same. Like, you know, a, you get like yeah. four hours of sun, and it, you know, it's nice, and you can put on your jean shorts for a minute. But like, <laughs> but then at at yeah you know, thirty, it's fucking dark, you know. And I have systems in place to deal with uh, the part of the depression which is feeling sadness. Um, but I didn't have anything put put in place to deal with the other side of depression, which is never feeling pleasure. And that's what got me on the drive was the never feeling pleasure. Hmm. When I was down in Mexico, I went walking on the beach with my uncle. He's probably, uh, you know, six, four, or maybe, uh, maybe two sixty, maybe two eighty. great big man. He's got these two tiny little dogs and we were walking down the beach together and the dogs are freaking out and just running around in the waves and stuff and he's running with them and playing with them and shouting with at them in half spanish and half english and i realized i was smiling so hard that my face hurt just looking at my uncle playing with his dogs on the Mm -hmm. beach I was having fun, dude. Mm-hmm. I, I had so much fun on this trip. I really like, I had a blast. That's great. You man. know, and, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, I took this walk up a river where it was just like the whole mountainside was just covered in this thick blanket of vines and foliage and, you know, the, the fucking babbling brook and the dogs and like, uh, I, I love Mexico. I I should go every year mm-hmm. as part of my program. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so restorative for me, and uh, and I had, I had so much fun. You know, I That's really great, had man. a blast. It's great, you know, and I th- I think that that the curative aspect of that really also just goes back to your willingness to be openly communicative about these impulses. You know, and for people that are listening that kind of struggle with this. You know, maybe they want to quit drinking or using drugs and whatever your protocol is for doing that. Um, if you've put together a little bit of time and then you start to feel that itch and, you know, you think it might sound like a good idea to go back out there and do something. The worst thing you can do is keep that idea to yourself. Like you've got to communicate that to another human being that you trust who can help you, you know, and the fear of judgment, um, that's got to get put aside. Well, and. Um, putting it out there, going public with it, that came That's frightening. From, that came from you because that podcast you did about relapsing, um, was so powerful and I was so proud of you for that. And it also put, um, uh, put my, my relationship with you in a new perspective, you know, in, in a, a new perspective where I was like, oh Yeah. When Rich says that he's struggling, he's really struggling, you know, and that, and I realized that I, you know, I mean, I tried to sort of phrase it carefully when I posted, um, you know, to say that I wasn't in crisis and that I, and that I, you know, I didn't need people to stop what they were doing and call me, but I just wanted to tell people that I'd had that thought that it was in my head and I wasn't going to do anything about it, but, um, it's valuable for me to call myself out and to be honest about it. And I think it's valuable for, I mean, I know it was incredibly valuable for me 
um, to hear your experience. And I, I know that there are people who, who know my writing and know my music and know me from the podcast and stuff, but don't know me personally and think like, Oh yeah, this guy quit drinking and then his life got perfect. And like, and I feel like I got to tear that down, mm-hmm. you know, and let people know that, um, my life is, uh, it's exponentially better. It's so much fucking better, but, uh, yeah, I still have bad days, man. And mm-hmm. I, you know, and I still have, uh, you know, I still have frustrations and, you know, like, any, like everybody else, well, like of anybody course, else, man. of you course, know. you know, uh, do you still, I mean, is that, is that impulse now completely dissipated or are you still living in it a little bit? Uh, I mean, if it, I, I think if I said, if it was completely dissipated, I would be, you know, being dishonest. It's, um, you know, it's, it's gone down from, a you know, from a seven to a two, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think, you know, I think it'll always be there and it's, um, you know, the Sicilian thing, you know, you keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You know, I, I don't ever want to be, um, you know, dishonest with you or with, or with myself and say, I mean, you always bust me on this. Oh, you got a beat now. Right. You know, no, it's, it's never beat, you know, um, I've got it, um, uh, you know. I'm, I have the advantage right now, you know, um, I'm, I, I have so much good stuff coming up right now. Um, I know that I'm going to be so worn out by the end of it, Mm -hmm. you know, between the, you know, music tour, book tour, book events, uh, my United States citizenship, which is just, you know, which is coming right up teaching at Yale, you know, crisscrossing back and forth across the country um there's uh you know i i and also i gotta figure out what's next i gotta figure out what the next you know what the next project is so i've you know i have a lot of stuff to do alcohol will help none of those (laughs) (laughs) it certainly won't man and you're a stronger man than i because so much of what you do you know playing music and and being on these comedy tours you're you're around a lot of people that are drinking you know you're in bars you're around a party atmosphere. <clears throat> I couldn't do that, man. I mean, I could, but it just, it would wear on my soul. Like it just wouldn't be good for me. Like I, I'm not Teflon with that kind of thing. Cause for me, I see it as putting myself in harm's way. And it's, I know you love it. You know, you, I mean, you love playing out and you love, you know, being around those people and all that kind of stuff, but that's tricky. And I think if you think that you're immune from that kind of you know, energy or environment seeping into your psyche, then you're fooling yourself, right? So you have to take extra care and precautions to not let, you know, that kind of thing, that sort of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like that kind of, um, you know, that ethos from seeping into your pores and impacting, you know, how you see yourself. What, uh, what it does to me being in bars is, you know, as much as I am, it, it doesn't tempt me. It makes me cranky. You know, I didn't have a lot of patience for drunks when I was a drunk. And now that I'm not, I'm sort of like, all right, you dug the show, you know, like wrap it up. You know, if you have something to say, say it. But if you're just going to blather on, you know, repeating yourself, then, Mm -hmm. you know, come on. Um, 
and that sounds really uncharitable to say because I do appreciate everyone who likes my music and who likes my um who likes my writing but um spending time in bars and around drinking people you you see firsthand what alcohol does to people um you know how it changes their behavior immediately and also how it changes their lives um and uh I have no desire to go back there and, and spending time with people who live in bars, uh, is powerful reinforcement that I made the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but also spending that much time in bars really makes me feel out of place and makes me feel like a, a stranger among my own fans, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not good either. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the things I'm looking forward to the most and one of the things that I find the most challenging is teaching at Yale again. Um, cause that, that takes, when does that start? Uh, that starts, uh, first week of June. There's uh, two different sessions that I'm teaching this year. There's a longer 10 day session. Then there's a, an intensive four day one. Um, that takes every ounce of focus, every ounce of intellect, every ounce of sensitivity, um, I have to be a hundred percent on the entire time. And, uh, and I love it because, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have a challenge like that, that takes everything that you have, um, it's great. You're totally engaged. And then afterwards you're fucking exhausted. Right. <laughs> you know, what is your aspiration for this book? I mean, I, that's the wrong I, question. I mean, that, not like what you're going to get out of it. What I mean is, you know, what is it that you want people to have experienced as a result of reading this book? Like, what is it that you hope to communicate and convey? You know that I don't have a huge investment in the concept of forgiveness. You know, that if somebody screws you over, you better remember it so they don't get a chance to screw you over again. Um, and this, um, this book was um it's about forgiving my father against my will you know i by learning about him and learning about his life and learning about his childhood and his young adulthood um learning who he was as a person and not just as capital d dad um you know gave me more sympathy for him than i than i'd ever had before and i saw Oh, oh, I understand now how you could make that mistake, you know, and, um, and I saw how alike we are, you know, both of us woke up halfway through our lives and said, man, because due to my, due to making some bad decisions and some cowardice and, you know, um, inability to stand up and be strong i find myself in a nightmare of my own creation i find myself deeply unhappy in a life i could not have imagined for myself and i don't know how to get out Mm -hmm. and i and i need to do everything and anything to escape this you know um and uh you know so i hope that i hope that people read the book and realize that forgiveness is some powerful shit and even if you feel like another person isn't deserving of your forgiveness, um, that's probably who you need to forgive the most. Uh, whether they deserve it or not, 
you deserve it. You deserve to be freed from holding that grudge Mm -hmm. because I spent most of my life trying to get my revenge on my father and I got a little bit of revenge on him, but for the amount that I hurt him, I hurt myself a thousand times more. You know, I, I poisoned myself. Right. And so anger. the the kind of overt journey to forgiving your father, I think, really is secondary to the journey of forgiving yourself. No, that that part of it, I think I'm still working on, mm-hmm. you know, if if I'm honest, um. You know, with my dad, it it wasn't like we had some passionate argument and then there was a pivotal point in the conversation and then we both burst into tears and he, I said, I forgive you. And he said, I forgive you. And we big embrace and the violins come up and then fade to black. It wasn't like that. It was just one day I went looking in that dark little cabinet in my heart where I kept, you know, where I keep my resentment for him and my anger towards him and my bitterness towards him. And I opened the cabinet and it was empty. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't find it, you know? And, but part of that is fueled by developing a greater understanding of him as a human being. Like you came into some, I'm not going to spoil the book, but there's some information that you come into Uh, that colors your perception of his life and some of the decisions that he made and allowed you to arrive in a place where you could understand him a little bit better and perhaps find a way to be a little bit more compassionate for his own path and his own struggles. And then you make this choice to communicate with him about it. And those decisions and those acts really provide the foundation for you to get to this place where you can you guys can get together and, you know, if you're not going to like break down in tears and hug it out, you can get to a place of understanding uh, that I think is, is genuine and authentic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, sort of specifically what I was talking about when I was talking about applying the things that you learn in sobriety um, to the rest of your life. You know, the, um, you know, my greatest fear when I was drinking was that I would have to stop drinking and was that I would have to come out and like tell people I have a, I have a horrible secret. You know, I'm an alcoholic and I'll always be an alcoholic. How dare you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I've been shameful. Like, I've, been, I've been living this lie, you know, and, and, with, and to to which the uh, the response you receive is really I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a secret to to no a one to, to no one yeah. but me. To who was to whom was this a secret? You know, and, and and with my father, neither one of us treasures the opportunity to talk about our feelings. You know, and I had to sit down with him, and I had to sit down and say. I've hated you and I had to sit down and and tell him I betrayed you. I stole information from you and it's the information that I stole from you uh, 
that's allowed me to uh to forgive you you know that was a fucking shitty conversation to you know mm-hmm. to sit down with him and and i could see him uh my dad has a pretty good poker face you know but i could see the sort of emotions ripple through him i could see him you know feeling a lot of anger and resentment and sort of betrayal and and also you know like where the you know where the fuck do we go now like what we're we're on you know uncharted territory um and uh Turns out uncharted territory is pretty nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, uh, you know, he, you know, I, I've done a couple of like online fitness challenges lately and he's sort of, he's done them. You know, I said, well, you know, dad, I bet you couldn't do, you know, 30 minutes of exercise every day for the month of November. And he was like, well, I fucking bet I could, you know, and he has. So he, you know, he'll text me his workouts and stuff like that. And we go back and forth mm-hmm. about, getting old and what we can't do these days and what we used to be able to do. And, um, you know, he came down to visit for Thanksgiving and that was great. And how does he feel about the way that he's portrayed in the book? He, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, is, I would imagine would, was difficult for him to read. I can't believe how generous he's been and how understanding he's been in the, and the, um, um, you know, the, the, perception that he's had about it and how sensitive he's been he um you know he said um he said that you know that's not how i remember it but that you know this isn't my story this is your story about how you remember it and so you need to tell it the way that you remember it i remember it differently you know um and you know but he said you know he said to me i interviewed him several times um you know during the process of writing this book and, and he said uh, Mishka, this is the first time anyone's ever asked me my side of the story, you know? So I think he was happy and relieved to, you know, to be given a little bit of a voice. Um, you know, I mean, I, I absolutely demonize him through, uh, you know, the first half of the first two thirds of the book. Um, because that's what, that's who he was at that time. That's, you know, that's what he was. Um, but, um, you know, but, uh, you know, there, there's in some honor- redemption for all. Right. Of us, and, and in know? kind of honoring his version of the facts, his story, uh, how does that impact your mom? Like, how does she feel about that airtime that he gets? Uh, it, it, you know, it was difficult for her. Um, you know, I mean, I made everybody in my in my family cry so much reading this book. <laughs> you know, my uncle read it when I was down there in, in Mexico, and, you know, and I'd I'd come in from a run or from you know hanging out, and I was like, you know, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know, just crying, <laughs> just, just crying, you know, um, and uh, you know, my mother knows that without her, there would be no book. Um, not just because I would never have gotten sober, but because I would have no relationship with my father because she was the one time and time again where I said, fuck him. He's irrelevant. He's, he's a sperm donor and nothing else. She said, no, you need to have a relationship with your father. Uh, he's, he's not a perfect man, but he's your father. 
and you need to have a relationship with him. And she kept pushing me back mm. to him and kept pushing me back to him. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I think her, you know, her presence is, you know, runs throughout the book. Um, even when I'm not, you know, writing about her directly, be, I mean, because, uh, she's why I didn't kill myself. <laughs> she was a lot of times she was it, man. She was the only thing tethering me to this earth. And, uh, you know, and also she doesn't, uh, you know, she doesn't begrudge him the, the spotlight, you know, she's, uh, you know, this is, this book is a big triumph for me and it's a, so it's a big triumph for her too. Right. Well, you honor her consistently throughout the book, so <laughs> she shouldn't have that big of a problem with it. You know? yeah, I, I, I don't talk as much trash about her as I yeah, do about yeah, my yeah. dad too, you know, so. Well, I'm super, I'm super proud of you. And I feel like you're somebody who's just hitting your, your creative stride. And, you know, you're somebody that I respect tremendously as an artist because you never hit a false note. Like it's everything that you put out there is who you are through and through. And I think that that is really what you aspire to do as an artist, right? And here we are you know, just days after the passing of, of David Bowie. And, and, you know, Julie and I were talking about it yesterday. We did a, an Ask Me Anything um, episode of the podcast, and we were kind of reflecting on the life of David Bowie as an artist. And, and, and I think, you know, I don't remember uh, this kind of outpouring in the wake of the passing of a, of a cultural icon um, on the level that we saw with David Bowie. It was mm -hmm. just amazing, right? Yeah. And well-deserved because, um, you know, I can't think of another artist who was so uh, completely him in every regard and somebody who never, you know, himself hit a false note, who never compromised, who was never anything but who he is and could never possibly be anything other than who he is, um, which I think is the, you know, the nadir. It's like the high watermark for, for any artist to emulate i think right yeah and uh and i think it's a it's a good reminder for anybody who's trying to achieve anything or try to trying to kind of evolve personally or you know tap into something uh creative in their own life or be more fully expressed you know whether it's writing a book or being a musician or or you know being a mom or an accountant it doesn't matter um i think there's a lot to be learned from the example of the kind of life that that guy lived and and also uh he was always david bowie and he was a million different david bowies right and that's you know and that's but they were always was, indelibly him yeah exactly exactly he was always a different a different david bowie and he was always totally himself he was um uh yeah i mean i i I read a lot of sort of, you know, tearful, um, very sad, you know, posts from friends of mine about how sad they were um, at his passing. Um, and then I read a post saying, man, how fucking lucky were we to be alive at, at the, the same, same time, time. I know. as an artist like David Bowie? It's a weird thing. Like, I don't actually feel sad because I don't feel like he's gone. 
because his presence is with us in such a profound way and will always be. And, you know, Julie said this in the podcast yesterday. She's just like, I stand up and applaud, like, well done. You know what I mean? To like exit in the way that he did in this creative flourish with his last note, having orchestrated, you know, how he's going to exit the planet. Like, beautiful, absolutely. Beautiful. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. We, we all got to die, man. We all got to die. And, uh, and, you know, nobody knows what, when their expiration date is, you know, not everybody, you know, he was fortunate to have gotten that, you know, the sad news that you have a, you know, a limited amount of time left. And had that, had a choice as to what to do with that time and made the choice to, to be as expressed as he possibly could. Yeah. Yeah. For the people that loved him by yeah. creating this flourish, you know, this creative flourish and this album that literally came out was, it was the day before he died. Right. It's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Right? yeah the, the, the foresight and the, you know, and also, I mean, uh, he he didn't want to waste any of his remaining time on Earth. Uh, people lamenting his passing. He was like, I, I got work to do, man. Right. Or look, you know? yeah, looking backwards. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, you know, when I was uh, um, I was walking down the street in Mexico right after I got the news that he died, and there were some, you know, or actually it was that night, and there were some. Some girls like, you know, dancing on a balcony, listening to the like greatest hits collection, you know, and my first thought was, oh, fuck you. You're like your greatest hits type fans, you uh -huh. know, like you don't know a single song that's not on that changes Bowie collection, you know, and like, um, and you, you don't know him like I knew him. And then I was like, shut up, man. Like he touched all of us. He touched us. He touched all of us in a different way. And it, and if, if it was just in a little cursory way like that, that they know a couple songs off the greatest hits collection, that's enough. Mm -hmm. It's okay. It's up, you know, it's their privilege to feel sad or feel happy or feel part of the moment, you know, and I, I need to stop being such, such a judgy prick about the whole thing. <laughs> a laudable goal. Uh, we'll see if I ever and get I think, there. <laughs> yeah, a, a good note to take us out on. All right. How do you feel? I'm, I'm good, man. You're good. good? Yeah. I'm, I'm good. excited for the book coming out. What is the day that it releases? Uh, it comes out uh, March 8th, uh, 2016. Uh, please use the banner ads on richroll.com. You're goddamn right. <laughs> now, listen, man, I'm super proud of you. Uh, I was... Um, moved to tears reading this book. Like I said, I read it on an airplane and I think I texted you or, or emailed you when I landed. It's funny because I was on a very long flight. So I finished reading it. Um, I think I've read it on the way back from Lebanon. Uh -huh. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and then immediately after that, I watched The End of the Tour, that movie about David Foster Wallace. Uh -huh. So it was like this back-to-back -back writer thing. <laughs> I was like, and you know, there's something weird when you're on an airplane and you're at higher altitude that it's easier to cry. Yeah. So I was like weepy for like hours. I was weepy reading your book and that just carried into watching that movie. Um, you know, another beautiful artist, fully expressed, uh, certainly a flawed human being. But in any event... Uh, you know, I really, uh, I applaud you, man, because this is next level writing. And I think I said to you, and this is in the, the blurb that I 
that uh that is going to be on the back of the cover is like this is in many ways this is the memoir that i wish i could write but i'm not capable of like your facility for tapping into the emotional depths of what it's like to suffer from alcoholism and be in that dark place of hopelessness um you really were able to capture it and convey it in a way that is very emotionally impactful and and beautifully poetic at the same time and your kind of rise from the ashes and the way that you put your your life together um is no less eloquent and beautiful and so i'm profoundly honored that i had a chance to read it before it came out and uh even more so to to be your friend and to be here to support this book so thanks man <laughs> Thank you, man. Thanks. Mm -hmm. It's good. So check the book out. Mishka's easy to find on the internet. He's just at Mishka Shubali. Right? Every, everywhere. And if you send him a message, he'll probably respond to it. I will absolutely he's respond. He's a, I'll he's a sucker. <laughs> I just might be cranky. Trolls. <laughs> <laughs> I can't guarantee what his response will be, but uh, you'll likely get a response, right? Absolutely. Cool, man. So where are you off to? after this i mean in the next couple of weeks or whatever i mean this is going to go up you know right when the book comes out so we're yeah. recording this it's only january 14th today um i go home i pack for uh a race on the 16th uh-huh 50 miler how's your, how's your foot not great oh come on man you're gonna go I, and run a 50 miler on like a broken foot n no i'm i'm going to uh i'm gonna run until it starts to hurt and then i'm gonna stop you sure about that? Yes. All right. I um, I did 27 miles on New Year's Day, okay. and it didn't hurt. Good. Um, it hurt afterwards, but it didn't hurt while I was running. So I'm, I'm we didn't even talk about running today, but <laughs> I'll have to read the book to see the 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 impact that running has had on Mishka and the relationship between your running and sobriety. But yeah, that, we tapped into that. We've know, talked in about spades that a lot. in past yeah, episodes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm gonna try and uh, I'm gonna try and get 38 miles uh out of the 50 that's my goal mm -hmm. and um then i'm flying back to new york for a week for a couple of shows and to do my my interview for my citizenship then i in february i have a little tour of the southwest then the book's out march 8th and then i'm gone with the wind mm -hmm. i'll be everywhere um and yeah all sorts of tour dates like 40 tour dates in a row all right so if people want to check you out whether it's you know for a book signing or to hear you play music are all your dates and appearances on your website mishkashabali.com right yeah. check that out man awesome did we do it that was it that was it man. i think we did it dude it's good wonder twin powers activate <laughs> thanks rich i love you man love you too peace plants no last words <laughs> what can I say beyond peace plants? Thank you. All right, everybody. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Seventh time is a charm, I think. Make sure to stick around at the very, very end, and you'll get to hear Mishka take us out with his new song, Ohio. And please be sure to pick up his new book, I Swear I'll Make It Up to You, by using the Amazon banner ad on the episode page, which also contains a slew of fantastic show notes and links to take your infotainment to the next level. If you're brand new to the podcast and you enjoyed this introduction to Mishka, 
then you might want to check out episodes 27, 31, 65, 95, 104, and 171. That's about 11 hours of Mishka to keep you entertained or perhaps appalled. For all your plant-powered and RRP swag and merch needs, go to richroll.com. We got nutrition products. We got cool t-shirts. We got stickers. We got what else do we have? We have fine art prints, lots of cool, fun stuff to elevate your wellness experience. Uh, keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. We have a uh, AMA episode that's going to go up midweek this week. It's been a while for Julie and I, so look forward to that. I think it's going to go up Wednesday night. Uh, shout out to Sean Patterson for help on the graphics and Chris Swan for production assistance on this show. Uh, and to Tyler Pyatt and Anna Lemma for the music cues. Uh, as you know, Tyler is no longer editing the show. I'm doing it myself. So if it's a little rough around the edges or not what you're used to, you can blame me, not him. Thanks so much for supporting the show by telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and for using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. And I will see you guys in a couple days. That's it. Until then, I'm going to enjoy New York City, and I hope that you find a way to enjoy your life wherever it finds you. Catch you soon. Peace. Plants. Well, she burst into flames around the junior high family dinner table. But she found a safe place in pink hair, combat boots, and black metal. Teenage witch, yes, she's a high school high priestess Failing English, but man, can she spell Ohio, you feel like you're getting sicker But you're just starting to get well So she cut glass and smoked grass and fell in love with the Nelsonville jail. Got her kicks on getting sick on brown liquor, white pills and black despair. The cancer rates rising, so let's do some drunk driving. We'll black out at every red light in town Ohio, if your head is spinning It's cause your luck's turning around
can come closer, there's nothing to fear. I know the terror, the pain, the blood, the hateful tears. You.